Well, I have some good news this morning. I haven't told you what it is yet. I finally gotten over my addiction to chocolate, marshmallows, and nuts. I won't lie, it was a rocky road. Just, I'm just kidding. I only stopped the marshmallows and nuts part, so. We're going to continue our study in the Gospel of Mark today, following Jesus when he leaves Jericho to go into Jerusalem. And it, as we've seen before, um, on the picture, wherever that is, it was a rocky road. And beginning in chapter 11, Mark will spend the remaining six chapters of his gospel describing just the last week of Jesus' life to fulfill the purpose for which he came. And today, I hope you brought your palm branches because we're going to begin with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In Mark 11, if you want to follow along in your Bible, Mark 11, beginning in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem, came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Now on the next day, when he had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then he came into Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den, And the chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. There are three incidents in this passage we need to talk about and we need to learn from. The triumphal entry, the cursing of the fig tree, and the cleansing of the temple. They're all really linked together, but it's too much to handle in one message. I'll spread it out. Uh, this week and then finish it next week. Today, we'll look at the glory of Jesus and the rebuke of Jesus 
Next time we'll look at the power and purpose of Jesus. See, Jesus' triumphal entry, uh, in many ways, magnifies his unique glory. Uh, why is it referred to, we refer to it as the triumphal entry? Because everybody there would have recognized the symbolism of what was going on in that ancient culture. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem surrounded by cheering crowds, he's doing what any victorious warrior king would do who was returning to a city after winning a great battle. He's coming in as a hero. A king would ride into the city, basking in the adulation uh, of people who would wave palm branches and spread their coats as a carpet to welcome him home as a hero. But when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he's asking us this question. What's wrong with this picture? Any other returning king would be riding on a big, decked-out, glorious war horse. While Jesus is a king, he isn't riding on a big war horse, but on a little donkey, riding on something more appropriate for a child. Even though Jesus has proven his miraculous kingly power and authority in the healings he's done and demons he's cast out, yet... He's not displaying himself as a conquering king. What is Jesus trying to say by this? He's making a statement, I believe. He's a king, all right, but not according to the world's expectations. And what he's doing, what we see here, is he's juxtaposing two things that are uh, giving us a glimpse of his glory, of his character as the Son of God. Uh, Things about him that are unique, shared by no other other person. No other person could. These juxtaposing of two things, his authority and power, his humility. He's riding into Jerusalem as a conquering king, receiving the praise of the people, but he's riding on a lowly, young, little donkey that's never been ridden before. So one way we see the glory of Jesus here is the combining in himself of these mutually exclusive traits not found in any other person. Jesus embodies majesty and meekness, power and weakness. That's him. That's Jesus. Um, there are three things we see in this passage where Jesus' power is being manifest. Let's do his power uh, is seen, first of all, in his sovereign control. Did you hear this? His sovereign control over the events of his life. He sends two disciples into a nearby town to borrow a donkey. He tells them where to go, what they're going to see, and what they should say. And it's just exactly the way it happened. Second, we see Jesus' power by the how the donkey responds to him. Uh, Jesus is Lord and is a complete control of the donkey he needs, Uh, which wouldn't be so strange, except this was a very young donkey, a foal, never been ridden before. An unbroken colt would not have been easy for somebody just to hop on and ride it into a loud, turbulent crowd. No way, humanly speaking. But it didn't have to be trained or broken for Jesus to ride on it. The colt received Jesus He had no trouble riding into Jerusalem. That's his power. 
Jesus' choice of the cult also is interesting because in Jewish law in Numbers 19, it is made clear that any animal used for a sacred purpose was never to be ridden on or yoked before. And that's what's going on here. Third, Jesus' uh, power is seen in his uh, great desire uh, to fulfill the scripture, what the scripture says about him. Um, in fact, if you, through his life, Jesus relentlessly, repeatedly seeks to fulfill the scripture. He's, he calls us our attention to that. And finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, before he's arrested and taken in, in Matthew 26, Jesus, uh, they, his disciples pull out a sword to defend him, and Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father? He'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. How then? Can the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that I that it must happen this way? And in this incidence of him riding into Jerusalem on this foal, this donkey, um, he's fulfilling Zechariah nine nine, which was read earlier, uh, that says, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you." He is just and endowed with salvation, and he's humble, mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. Notice that in Zechariah 9 there, the Old Testament, the mutually exclusive character traits describing Messiah. He's a triumphant king, but he's a humble, gentle king. Riding on a little donkey. And in that picture of him riding into Jerusalem on a little donkey, Jesus, I think, is also giving us what I call a living parable. A living parable of self-disclosure, a lesson for those who, who would also be part of his kingdom. He's the king of power and glory, receiving praises of his people, but he's also the humble king who comes in weakness. And I think the lesson is you enter his kingdom not through your valiant efforts, your heroic deeds, but only as you humble yourself and receive his grace. So the glory of Jesus is seen in his sovereign power and control of his entry into Jerusalem. All those aspects are happening But the glory of Jesus is also seen. We see it in the response of the, of the crowd. They respond with a crescendo of praise. They are acknowledging and declaring that Jesus is the promised Messiah, their Davidic king, in everything they were doing, saying, and singing as Jesus entered. They are echoing how the people of Israel, through the Old Testament, received their new king. For instance, when they anointed Jehu king in 2 Kings 9, 12 and 13, the text says, Thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. Well, then the people hurried, and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, Jehu's king. They're laying down their coats so he could come in victorious and honored. 
Look at what they're doing for Jesus in Mark 11.8. And many spread their coats on the road. Others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. This is a, a kingly character, characterization. We also see that in their song, uh, they're singing from Psalm 8, 118. Uh, which says, O Lord, Hosanna, we beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, send prosperity now. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Uh, psalm 118 is the same psalm that Jesus uh, will quote in Mark 12 to identify himself as the Messiah to the religious leaders, which says later on, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Now in Mark 11, when they sing from Psalm 118, declaring Jesus to be the promised Davidic king, two words stand out. Hosanna and blessed. Let me read it. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna, in the highest heaven. That's what they shouted. Uh, It's a reference to Psalm 118. When the crowd calls out Hosanna, the Hebrew word literally means save us. Save us. Ironically, the crowd probably has no idea of the salvation Jesus is bringing. Paradoxically, while Jesus is the king they expected, he's not bringing what they were expecting. They expected a king on a war horse who would lead them into battle against Rome, free them from their Gentile occupiers. Instead, they see a humble, gentle king who comes in the name of peace. This king brings a salvation of soul and body. They expected a savior only for Jews, He's coming as the Savior of the world. So the first word that's important for us to zero in on is that word, Hosanna. Save us. He's bringing salvation. The crowd also cries out with the word, blessed. Um, First, blessed is the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Second, blessed is the coming kingdom. The king the kingdom of King David. The word blessed refers to, every time in the scripture, to God's blessedness. Um, It's the state a person would find in God's presence. Blessed. Blessedness is not just happiness. It's a state of perfect wholeness. It's the healing of every ill, brokenness, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally. Blessedness is a state of perfect peace. Perfect fulfillment of our capacity for joy and being loved. That's what this king is bringing. We see the glory of Jesus in his triumphal entry. This unbelievable juxtaposition of great power and great weakness. He's our king. And so they call out, blessed is he. Jesus' glory is 
really uh, seen in the fact that he is the, the epitome of God's blessedness. He's the source and channel of God's blessedness in God's kingdom. But not only do we see his glory being manifested as he comes into Jerusalem in these ways, we also see his glory next in his rebuke. As we follow Jesus uh, as he comes into Jerusalem, uh, we notice that if you're listening, he comes into Jerusalem twice. He comes in the first time triumphantly. It's the adulation of the crowd riding on a little bitty donkey to the, to the people's praises, and he heads straight for the temple. Doesn't, doesn't mess around. He just heads straight to the temple. That's where he wants to go. He goes in, the text says he goes inside and he looks around. And then he leaves. Leaves Jerusalem, goes to Bethany for the night. The next day they get up. He goes back into Jerusalem and heads for the temple again. Now we're going to talk about that next time, but on his way back to Jerusalem from Bethany, he gets hungry, spots a fig tree that has leaves on it, springtime. Um, and when Jesus doesn't find any fruit on it, he curses this fig tree. Um, on the surface, <laughs> you'd have to admit, this, this looks really bad for Jesus, you know. Uh, he curses the fig tree for not having any fruit. It wasn't even the season for figs. This poor little innocent fig tree, why is Jesus being so mean to it? And here's where some knowledge of the culture and horticulture can come in handy. I think Jesus cursed the fig tree for two reasons. First, he cursed it because of its fruitlessness. Uh, I didn't know this till I started studying this, but fig trees actually bore two different kinds of fruits, of edible fruits, in different seasons of the year. Uh, now, at this time, this was not the normal season for regular figs, but it was in season for another type of fruit called the breba fruit, or out-of-season fruit. I think we have a picture there. Breba fruit. When a fig tree first started to leaf in the spring, which is when they're walking towards Jerusalem, the branches produce these little nubs called breba. And they were good to eat. They're smaller. The breba crop was smaller. But they produced these tasty, sweet figs at a time when no other tree was anywhere close to ripening fruit. And when a traveler saw the leafy tree in the distance, it was holding out the promise for fruit. Hungry, people had gone all winter without fresh fruit and looked towards these breba figs. Pilgrims and pilgrims and travelers loved to eat them on their way if they spotted them. And that's what Jesus is. He sees this fig tree and leaf. Now, the only reason a fig tree would have no breba fruit was because it was diseased. It might look good on the outside. From a distance, but inside, it was diseased and dying. 
And that leads us to the second reason Jesus curses the fig tree. He curses the fig tree because he's using it as a parable. For the sake of his disciples, those following along with him, he's going to use it again in chapter 13. In the Old Testament, you see, the nation of Israel was likened to a fig tree. Hosea 9.10, God says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit, the breba fruit, on the fig tree in its first season. But they came to Baal Peor and devoted themselves to shame. They became as detestable as that which they loved. And it wasn't God. You love anything but him, that's, we become like that. Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem and cleanse the temple that they had corrupted. Jesus curses the fig tree as a, as a living parable, a little lesson between his first and second visits to the temple, and he's using the fig tree as a parable against hollow religiosity, diseased spirituality. Jesus knows he's about to walk into what should be the most holy, spiritual, sacred place on the earth. And he's going to be very disappointed. Why? He will find no fruit. We'll talk, about, we'll talk more about this next time. But when Jesus walks into the temple, he finds it very busy religiously. Very busy. But there was no spirituality in it. People weren't praying. They were buying and selling and doing commerce and having business. It looked very religious, though, on the outside because they were buying and selling animals to sacrifice. But Jesus knew on the inside it was diseased. Now, lest we turn away from this and say, well, those... Those Jews didn't, didn't know it. You know, they shouldn't have been doing that. I think, I think Jesus is rebuking us all with this parable. You see, uh, we too can be very busy doing good spiritual things. Running in and out. And we can read and study our Bible. All these activities. We can come to church. We can serve in a ministry. But what's going on in the inside? Where's the fruit? God looks for. Jesus looks for. Listen to me. Are we any different as a result of those busy things? Any different whatsoever from year to year? Are we becoming more like Jesus, more loving, gracious? Are we becoming coming more joyful and at peace in the fruit of the Spirit? Is there any fruit that's coming up out of us, you see? Is anybody else seeing and hearing the gospel message through our lives, through our mouths? Any fruit, anything. It's the season, you see. Or are we just staying very busy? Checking off our boxes. Had my quiet time. I could go through <laughs> the Christian list. Look, I'm telling you, 
those things are fantastic. But those things, those things that we do, are meant to impact us in our heart of hearts and change us from the inside out and bear fruit for Jesus. And some of, sometimes we're just like the fig tree. we got a lot of leaves. We're looking good on the outside, but inside we're dying in a pile. We're just as mean as we were two years ago. We're just as frustrated and anxious and fearful we were five years ago. No change, no fruit of the Spirit living in us. So the question, I think, uh, for us as well as the Jews at this time in the temple, is is Jesus finding more busyness or more blessedness? (laughs) A state of peace, fulfillment of being in God's presence and marveling at what he's doing in our lives and the changes we've experienced. Even down to our fundamental personality. So, uh, next time we'll have a lot more to say about when (laughs) when he enters the temple in this Amazing, amazing event. Um, we'll, we'll save it. Jesus is the Son of God, and he comes into Jerusalem welcomed as a king. But he's presenting himself in weakness as a humble king, and he has all the power at his disposal, but he, does, he uses it to serve, not to enslave. He enters the temple expecting the fruit of lives totally devoted from God, from those he came to save. Instead, he finds empty, religious busyness. The fruit Jesus is expecting is not something derived from our own valiant efforts to be spiritual. That's that's what all the business is about. Oh, God can use those things, but he wants to meet us in our heart of hearts. And that comes by being linked to him by faith and enjoying his presence and listening and praying to him. John 15, 5, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the, he uses this metaphor to help them understand this. I'm the vine. <laughs> you are the branches. Now, he who abides in me, he bears much fruit. Abide meaning uh, we're sharing his presence. We're uh, drawing life from him, from his spirit in us. He's the one nourishing us. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You can just stay busy. You can't change yourself from the inside out. He can. I'm convinced uh, we will bear no lasting fruit for God, no meaningful change of heart, no effective impact for the gospel, unless we know and abide in Jesus Christ, personally. 
Maybe you don't know how to do that. Well, come and, come and see uh, come and see me. Come and see Pastor Dennis. Come and see the elders. We'll t- pray and try to help you with that. We've spent years <laughs> learning the difference between being busy and actually enjoying a fellowship, personal fellowship with Jesus. That's what changes you. Now, we're grafted, actually, into Jesus. He's the vine, and he's got all these separate branches. He says, you want to you be in him, in the, in the vine? We can be grafted into Jesus when we believe in him as our Savior, as the person God sent to save us from our sins and give us eternal life. And I urge you, if you've never done so, to believe in Jesus. I urge you to believe in him and abide then in him, to be grafted into his abundant life. Blessedness. He is the epitome of blessedness. We'll continue this next week. There's so much here. Let's pray today. Father, thank you for helping us to see the glory of Jesus in, in this triumphal entry and even in the cursing of the fig tree. We see his majesty, his meekness, and his power, and his weakness. We ask you to help us, uh, Lord, as we follow him, not to practice uh, or keep practicing a kind of hollow, self-righteous religiosity, but help us to walk in humble weakness, depending on you. Uh, And we ask you to just meet us in our heart of hearts by your Holy Spirit. Would you show us what is it that you want to do inside us uh, to conform us to the image of of Jesus? Uh, What is the the thing you most want us to see uh, to help us become like him? Help us, Lord, as a result of that, to bear much fruit as we abide in Jesus. And I, I pray for this for us all today. In Jesus' name, amen.